Today, we have a special guest speaker that we'll be introducing today. If you're new, we started a new sermon series called A Faith of Our Own. How do we own our faith given our unique context or cultural backgrounds? And we are, I kicked off the series last week, but starting today in the next three weeks, we'll be having a series of guest speakers to come. And we try to bring guest speakers that we're either connected with or they're gifted preacher, just somehow we know who they are. And again, really uh, blessed to introduce uh, this one brother named Pastor Jay Song. Some of us here, you might know him. A lot of people know him from his church. His, he uh, planted a church in Palo Alto called True North. And whenever people from that church come down here, it's usually kind of a destination. Whenever people from up down here go to NorCal, we point them to True North. And Pastor Jay Song, uh, he went to UC Santa Barbara. There's any people who are Santa Barbara alumni here? And uh, one person, all right. And then he uh, got his <laughs> master's in divinity from Talbot School of Theology, which a lot of our pastors also got as well. Jay is married to the love of his life, Christina, and they have three children, Riley, Isaac, and Jacob. And again, Pastor Jay, he's just someone that uh, I just have fun spending time with. We actually, a couple of us went to a conference together recently this past fall and just reminded me Jay is the, the funniest Asian American man I know. So I always joke if, Jay, if pastoral ministry doesn't work, he could totally be a stand-up comedian. He would, he would kill it. It's awesome. Most especially, he really cares for this church. He, I think, you know, I just sense that he's always curious about our church. He knows the congregation here. And so really, really thankful that he made the weekend the space to come and to bless us with God's word. So as he comes up, why don't we welcome him and, and say welcome to, to our applause. I remember last time, um, this pulpit hasn't changed. <laughs> well, um, I'll do my best to kind of like, you know, do, do this, you know, just, just so you guys know that it's not like a floating head just talking to you guys. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, good morning. And, and it's just, my name is Jay, obviously, you know, thanks for that wonderful introduction. Um, you know, Pastor Tom is someone that I respect and especially a lot in ministry and someone that I consider a friend and colleague. So when he reached out and, and asked me uh, to be able to share and preach today at Grace Hill, I, I was very honored. And, uh, you know, it's also, um, you know, I, I see some familiar faces. Uh, whenever our church members move down to Orange County, I always tell them, hey, here's the churches you should visit, but this is the church you should stay at. So, um, you know, I see some of them here already, and it's great to see you. Uh, I am originally from Orange County. I grew up in Yorba Linda, um, uh, and, and I'm pretty old. So I grew up in Yorba Linda uh, when Richard Nixon was still alive. So there was no library. Uh, I remember the library being built, um, and you know, it just now that I've been in the Bay Area for almost ten years now, I realize that I've I've kind of transformed more into a Bay Area person than than an Orange County, Southern California person, and, and I and I realized this because I, I went and ate dinner with my friends at a, a Korean Chinese restaurant, and it was the best Korean Chinese restaurant I've ever had in like five years, and I was like, this is so delicious, and they're like, oh, this is whatevs, and I was like, what? Because you know, Bay Area food sucks. And, and when I drive around the Bay Area, I, I would get so angry because everyone drives so slow. Um, now people are passing me by here and like staring me down. I was like going 45 miles an hour on like a 25 mile zone and people were like tailgating me. And I was like, what the heck? I, I love it, you know? Like, uh, you know, and just all my friends this summer, they, they went to Korea and I really had a lot of jealousy because I wanted to go to Korea too. But uh, when I came down here, I drove down Beach Boulevard, and I felt like I got my taste of Korea. So um, love, love to be back in Southern California. I just love the familiarity. I love the weather. I love that it stays warm and, and you know, that my kids go, go swimming at night. 
uh, and it's just something that um, it's always good to be back home uh, and, and to see my family and to be able to share this time with you guys is also a wonderful privilege. Um, and I, I love, um, I'm not a coffee snob, I love like Starbucks, but today my wife got me like a misukaru drink. If you guys know anything like that, tell me. I, I want to drink that as much as possible. So um, if you guys can give recommendations, I'm always open up for that too. Um, well, you know, Pastor Tom, he reached out and said uh, the sermon series this month is going to be centered around the theme of a uh, faith of our own. And I believe that this is going to be a very important topic, especially for Asian Americans and Asian American Christians uh, moving forward. Uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, kind of I, my generation, we grew up in a time when the idea of assimilation and, and just kind of blending into our cultural setting was, was really the goal. You know, so the idea of being seen as less Asian uh, and, and more accepted into a broader Western culture, uh, that was, the, that, that was the, the hope of, of yourself growing up. You know, so uh, me growing up in Yorba Linda, I, I was one of three Korean kids in my schools, and um, I didn't want to hang out with the other Korean kids because I, w- I didn't want to be seen as Korean. But then my teacher was like, hey, there's a new Korean kid. Um, I, sat, I sat him next to you. I was like, oh, why? You know, like, but we became best friends and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Like, I, I know I was like, I can't be your best friend because you're Korean. You know, but we became best friends. Um, but even now, when I moved, or about 10 years ago, about nine years ago when I moved up to the Bay Area, the, the hope was that, to, you know, the, the goal was to plant a church where we can be a church that reflected the, the general community. You know, that uh, this idea of kind of being a melting pot of, uh, of, of, a, of a place where different ethnicities and different cultures can come together uh, was really, really the goal. But the more and more we did ministry and the bigger our church got, like, uh, I, we kept, you know, the Asians kept outnumbering the non-Asians. And I was like, how do I stop them from coming, you know? Um, but it was, it was just inevitable. And, and I realized the more and more I, 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 fig- I realized kind of like who I am, how God has uh, created me, uh, my, my own identity, uh, I, you know, this, this is the calling that God has given me. And um, even more recently, I've been thinking about more about well, what does it mean for us in our Asian American context, uh, whether you're Korean American, Japanese American, um, Chinese American, or, or even if you are uh, not in it from an Asian American context, what, what does it mean for us to really apply the truths of Scripture in light of the cultural upbringings that we have? Because oftentimes, um, our own cultures are oftentimes in opposition to how the gospel should be applied into our lives. And even for now, the next generation, when I'm, I'm, as my kids are getting older, I'm thinking about also the next generation and, and, and how they view Christianity and, and through the lens of their own cultural upbringing. And I realize it's vastly different from my own. Um, so I, I, I go to a gym and one of the um, front desk workers, uh, she's a Korean college student. And, you know, like going to the gym, I, I like try not to make it known that I'm a pastor, right? And the, but then word got out. And then one day she came up to me and she's like, hey. I heard you're a Korean pastor of a Korean church. And I was so offended. I was like, how dare you? You know, like, and I was like, no, 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 no. I'm Korean, but I'm not a Korean pastor. And there's some Koreans in the church, but it's not a Korean church. You know, and then she, she was kind of like, kind of disappointed. She's like, oh, you know, and like, I was like, wait a second. Wait, should I have said I was a Korean pastor of a Korean church? Uh, but it, it, the generations are, are changing where this idea of being more, uh, the, the ability to be able to identify more clearly and openly with your, with your cultural heritage is something that uh, our, our children are growing up with, you know, and maybe even young Gen Z people, they, they understand a little bit more, right? I, you know, I, I love TikTok. Don't do it, but I love it. Um, I, I would watch, like, kids, like, you know, they all look like uh, K-pop stars, and then and they're like, 
do they like me because I look like BTS or do they like me for me? And I was like, what? You have girls liking you. That's a good thing. You know, like it's, it's, a, different, it's a different generation, right? And we're living in a time where like BTS or, or K-pop or, you know, uh, A24 movies that speak specifically about uh, the Asian American journey or even like Physical 100 where everyone's like buff and like, you know, they're not, they're not like these meek like Asian characters, but they're all buff and strong. Like it, it, we're living in a time when people are seeing uh, the vast difference and, and the different, uh, you know, culture of, of Asian Americans. And, and I think through that, we have, also have to understand that growing up here in America, or if you grew up in a, a more Western evangelical context, um, there really has not been a model for us as Asian Americans of what it means to apply gospel truths to the cultural context in which we grew up in. And so now as I'm getting older and as I'm getting a little bit, uh, you know, my hair's turning a little, my, not my hair, my beard's turning a little gray, um, my, my, my eyesight's getting a little worse, uh, I'm, I'm thinking through a, a lot of the ways in which I've grown up, a lot of the different ways in which, um, you know, God has created me and the family and the, uh, the dyna- cultural dynamics that I've grown up in, and seeing some of the... Um, some of the round pegs that I've tried to squeeze into a square hole and why it's been, it was so difficult for me to understand some certain concepts of the gospel because I've always been trying to put that round peg in this square hole. And so today I want to really talk about the topic of grace and shame and how specifically as, as an Asian American, um, and for me personally talking from as a Korean American, how this idea of grace and shame has been modeled for me in a more Western evangelical context and why there was such a big chasm where sometimes things just didn't match up. And the way we operate and the way we process grace and shame can often be uh, viewed as negative when sometimes it was just purely because of our cultural upbringings. And so we're going to look at the life of Moses, and, and we're not going to really do like an expository uh, sermon through the text that we're going to read, but we're going to kind of just broadly see the life of Moses and how God operates in Moses' life to really lavish him with grace, to allow him to process his shame, and ultimately point to Jesus Christ, who is the redeemer of our shame, who is the one who conquers our shame for us. So at this time, if you can all rise as we read our passage together... I'm going to read for us Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And this is really the introduction of Moses' life and Moses into our text today and into the scripture. Uh, Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, this is the reading of God's word. It says this, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children." Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. 
She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Amen. Now, the first, oh, you may now be seated. Sorry. See, that's, that's how I know you guys are Asian. You guys are waiting for, you know, <laughs> waiting for me to give you the instruction. First point is this idea that there's no limit to God's grace. Right? And I think that's something that if you grew up in the church, it's something that you would say amen, hallelujah. You would agree with that point very, uh, very easily. And when we think about the God, uh, grace of God, you know, it's, it's something where we know that it's limitless, that it's vast, that it has no bounds. Right? We sing those songs. And if I gave you a test, and if you're doing a membership class, and it's like, how are you saved? You're saved by grace alone, right? And, we, and we're able to regurgitate that knowledge, and we're able to regurgitate that phrase. But when it comes to actual application of grace, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those people around us, we can be honest with ourselves that there are limits to, God's, uh, limits to grace, right? And, and the thing is, is that God's grace without limits and the way humans operate, um, we absolutely place limits on grace. There's, there's certain thresholds and certain boundaries um, that people cannot come back from if they ever sin against you or do something to you. Right? For me, um, uh, recently we had a leadership retreat and we we're talking about some of our church values with, with some of our lay leaders and some of our staff. And one of the values that we want to talk about is this idea that anyone and everyone is welcome to our church. And one staffer was like, but is it? And I was like, what the heck? Why, why are you pushing back on this? You know, like, are you even Christian? Of course everyone's welcome, right? And, and, and he, he, he was like, I don't know if that, that's true. Like, what if a, a child molester, a known child molester came into our church? Is he welcome? And I was like, you're right. Absolutely not. You know, because for me, um, any, any rapists or child molesters or people have, you know, done sexual assault, like, I, I, would, I would never welcome them into my life. And I'll be very wary to welcome them into my community and to my church, right? Because we have certain, we have certain boundaries to the extent of grace that we're willing to give, um, recently, I read an article that Larry Nasser, who was the you know, gymnast, gymnast, U.S. gymnastics team doctor, he got stabbed in prison like multiple times. And when I read that story, I was like, yeah. You know? Even, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, and think about it. Even in prison, there's a code of ethics, right? There are certain people who are, who are targeted by other criminals. Like, other criminals have deemed them to be more criminal than themselves. And, and, and so when we are really honest with ourselves in our own humanity and our sinfulness, we might have a mental acknowledgement about the limitlessness of God's grace, but we can't truly grasp that idea because in our own lives, we do place limits on grace. There are certain unforgivable acts. There are certain things that we would never be able to uh, forgive if a close friend or family member has offended us in a certain way. And especially in the church, there are certain things that are faux pas that you are, shouldn't say or shouldn't do. And if you do, then you are already labeled as an outcast. You're already labeled as kind of a socially awkward, someone to be on the lookout for, right? So, I, 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 so when we think about this idea, we understand that even though throughout Scripture, God is revealing his grace to us. Is revealing the story that no matter how depraved we are, that God's grace can reach us. 
And we see this from Adam and Eve. We see this from Noah. We see it all the way until Jesus finally reveals the ultimate story of the gospel. And so for Moses, we see this example. We see a man who, by all accounts, should not receive forgiveness. We see a man who is completely outcasted, and yet God's grace reaches far and wide to receive him. So now, when we, when we think about this story, number one, we see how God's grace is really protecting Moses, even from the very beginning of his life. So there's an edict in Egypt that has gone out where every Hebrew child should be placed to death, right? Um, so, you know, Pharaoh, he sees his nation. He sees that there's too many Hebrews. They're... they're, they're outnumbering the Egyptians. So they say, we, gotta, we need a little you know, crowd control. We need some population control. Every child that is born, they need to be put to death. Moses' mother has a child. She decides to hide him, and she's able to hide him for three months. If you are a, child, a parent of a young child, you know that's a very difficult task, right? And at the three-month mark, Moses is he's getting louder, and it's too hard to hide him. So what does she do? She has no other option but to place him inside a basket and put him in a river hoping that maybe he will find safety. Now, I don't know about you guys. Um, that doesn't seem like a very good plan, right? Like putting your child in the basket and just putting him in, you know, like imagine if you went to the Santa Ana River and just put your child in the basket like, oh, find safety, you know, like good luck, right? And, and I'm, not, I'm not an expert of exactly where this is, but this is probably near the Nile River. And then, you know, the Nile River has got like saltwater crocodiles, you know, like, they're huge. They're going to they're gonna find a free meal. But that's what she does. And just as Noah was protected by God's grace in the ark, here God protects this young child in this basket. And he floats along the river as his older sister Miriam watches along. And he finds um, the servant of, of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, think about this here, guys. Um, if you are a parent and, and some, like, official comes and says, hey, um, I found this child, can you nurse this child and I'll pay you to nurse this child? That's a win-win situation right there, right? I, I, I always thought the story of Moses was like the prince of Egypt, like Moses becomes adopted and he just grows up as an Egyptian. He doesn't. God's grace even protects Moses from not knowing his heritage, not knowing the story of God by the fact that Pharaoh's daughter realizes, I can't nurse this child. Here, and Miriam has the wits about her to say, oh, I know a Hebrew woman that could nurse this child. She brings her mom. So they are able to take Moses into their own house, nurse him until he's of, of age, so he understands the story of, of, the, of, of Yahweh. He understands the, uh, the, 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 the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He understands all these things because it's taught to him by his own parents he probably does not have the trauma of, you know, living in, a, in an adoptive family. And then as he's of age, he's then sent to Pharaoh's daughter to live among her as her son. So he gets the best of both worlds. He learns the history of Yahweh. And now at a certain age, as he's older, he gets the best education of the Egyptians, learning algebra and calculus and, and all the science and the stuff that the Egyptians came up with. Now, if you think about that, you realize God's grace, even though his name is not yet mentioned, is all over the life of Moses. His fingerprints are all over his life. And with this background, we see Moses has a very unique position of living under the privilege of the Egyptian royalty, but also knowing 
the God of his forefathers. And, is that, and it is because of this that he witnesses a, a brutal treatment of a Hebrew brother by an Egyptian slave taskmaster. And because of this, he senses a strong sense of responsibility. And so he goes and intervenes and he murders this person. He murders a slave, uh, slave taskmaster. He's a murderer. He should get canceled. He should get arrested. He should be put on trial. He hides that fact, and later on, we see that you know, some of his Hebrew brothers call him out and say, what are you going to do? Are you going to murder us too? And so he runs away to the land of Midian, where he becomes a, a shepherd under his father-in-law. Now, um, for the people of Egypt, the lowest position that a person can have is to be a shepherd. Uh, that's why they had such disdain for the people of Israel. And this is where Moses now resides. He resides as a person who was once elevated to the position of royalty, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, a man with all the privilege that any Hebrew could ever imagine. And now he is a murderer, a fugitive, on the run. And here in Midian, at the lowest point of his life, where you would think that he would spend the rest of his life in hiding, because we, we know people like that, right? We know people who've fallen in ministry, we know people who've fallen in our lives and, and, and we never hear from them again. Right? They just kind of live off on their own. But here at this very position where Moses is a runaway fugitive working for his father-in-law as a shepherd and this is the very place where God's grace calls out to him and he reveals himself to Moses as a bush that is burning but yet not consumed. Moses sees this bush he goes to check out what's going on, and then he hears the voice of God say, Moses, take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Now, when we think about a different place in the Old Testament where God reveals himself, oftentimes as, as a fire or a, or, or a giant pillar of light, right? Uh, we, we see that um, it, it's this idea of refining and, and consuming sin. In the previous story in Genesis, when Abraham was, was able to cut up pieces of, of animals and he was able to you know, kind of set up a, a covenant with God, it says that Abraham was put to a deep sleep as the fire or torch of God went down the middle. Okay? And the reason why Abram or Abraham was put to a deep sleep was because the very presence of God in his midst would have killed him. And even while he was in a deep sleep, uh, Genesis describes that he felt a deep sense of terror when that torch went through. That's how holy God is. And yet, this murderer, this fugitive, is in the very presence of God, and he doesn't say, take off your sandals because you're about to step on holy ground. He says, take off your sandals because you are on holy ground. We see that God's grace extends even to the lowliest of fugitives, people in the worst possible situation ever, someone who is on the run for murder, someone who is so filled with shame that he had no other choice but to find work as a shepherd with his father-in-law. Now, when we think about that amount of grace that God has, it's, 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 really, it's really a shame that we are not able to fully grasp that amount of grace in our own lives. Number one, to ourselves and to the people around us. 
that we place even limits within our own selves where we believe that unless we act a certain way or unless we're able to achieve certain things that God will not love us. We think that we are unable to come into God's presence because maybe last week you had a very bad week. Maybe you're struggling with the same sin over and over again and you know that you can't outwardly say it because it would bring too much shame upon you. Perhaps you were someone that was very involved in church before. Perhaps you were at a different church and now you're finally finding solace here in this community and yet the, the, the feeling of shame just envelopes you every time you think about God because you can't forgive yourself. And yet throughout scripture, God has shown us that there's no limit to his grace. That there's no one too far gone removed or too much of a sinner that cannot be saved. And Moses is the perfect example of that. Now as we think about Moses and think about grace, we also have to understand shame. Right? And I think especially in an Asian American context, shame plays a huge role in how we process things, in how we just kind of operate, right? So number one, shame is, um, it's a feeling that we feel or you know, it's, it's something that we struggle with when we violate social norms that we believe in, okay? So it, this is important. It's a social norm that we believe in. If you believe in a social norm and you violate that, you will feel shame, right? You will feel shame. Uh, and, and shame is, it, it directs our focus inward uh, it's this idea of, of feeling negative for who we are because of what we have done, right? Uh, guilt is a little different. Guilt is regret for a certain behavior. Shame is thinking, oh man, this is who we are because of what we've done, right? Uh, one of the best ways to understand or feel shame, if you are on Facebook, go on your Facebook memories and look at your post from like 10 years ago, okay? Like, what did I, what did I post, Right? Like, did I really say that, you know? And for my, like, we, back then, we used Facebook like Twitter. So we just ran, ran, ran and I'm like, oh, I can't believe it. And you have to delete it, delete it, right? That's how you, that's how you know what shame is. Uh, and now, shame is experienced more in adolescents and young adults and elderly than in the middle-aged, okay? Uh, young adolescents and young adults, they, they feel shame because they're not yet fully formed in their personality and they're expected to conform to all manners of societal norms, so uh, I realized that my young children, you know, I'd be like, hey, um, go ask them for a napkin. And they'd be like, no. I'd be like, what the, like, just go ask them for a napkin. Like, oh, you do it. I'm like, because they don't understand. They're still being formed, right? And, and I remember growing up in middle school, like, there's, uh, you know, if you have kids in middle school or high school, there's a lot of societal norms within their school that they have to abide by. And, and you won't understand, just as my parents didn't understand. And so there's, there's a lot of shame dealt with that. The elderly, they start feeling a lot more shame because their physical uh, you know, capabilities decline and they become very self-conscious about that. Uh, but the ones who feel the least shame are middle-aged people because fully formed, you know, like it's all good, right? Like whenever I walk around and, and do things with my, my kids, my daughter goes, aren't you embarrassed? I go, no, why would I be embarrassed, you know? And my wife, she's like, don't do that. That's embarrassing. Like, what do you mean embarrassing? Who's, who cares what people think? You know, because I'm a middle-aged man. Like, nothing, what? You know, like, who do I got to impress, right? Now, one of the important aspects of grace and shame, though, is that in the context of our Asian-American culture, uh, we have to acknowledge that the way we process shame is very different from what we've been taught both in the white 
white Western evangelical world and even in the, in the Eastern Asian con- uh, culture because we're like a weird mix of both. Now, now there's a reason why um, I, I believe uh, when you think about more of a white evangelical culture, they love singing triumphant songs, right? Um, one of my favorite songs is uh, So Will I, A Hundred Billion Times. You know that song? When I first heard this, I was like, this song is amazing, right? And I was listening to it in the car, and there's one line where it says, as you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. I'm like, oh, yes, you know, right? And I was like, I went to my worship leader, I was like, hey, we're singing this song. And then we sang that song, and it was like dead silent. And I was like, it's okay, they're just building up. And then that one line, as I speak, a hundred billion failures disappear, I was like, I was like hoping that people would be shouting it out, and I thought I would be shouting it, but I was like, ah, oh, I, I, I totally like didn't do it, right? Be- because as Asians, we, we process shame very differently. To, to be able to outwardly talk about failures, no way, we ain't never going to do that, right? In the Bay Area, uh, when, when there was, I mean, there's been a lot of layoffs, and, but especially when, when a lot of Google employees got laid off, we had a lot of Google employees as well, but on LinkedIn, like, people would share, I got laid off at Google, you know? Oh, no. And they would post, hey, I got laid off at Google. And they're sharing their stories that people got laid off. Every single one of them was non-Asian. Even people at my church that had been laid off, they wouldn't tell me they got laid off. They wouldn't tell anyone they got laid off. You know? And the way sometimes it would be communicated would be like, hey, uh, you know I got laid off, right? You know, because, no, I didn't. <laughs> like, why would I know? You know? Because sharing failures would be the most shameful thing, Right? So Richard Nisbet, who authored a book titled The Geography of Thought, How Asians and Westerners Think Differently and Why, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he explains that there are key differences between the two cultures and how they view shame. In the Western culture, uh, there's a greater emphasis on individualism and personal autonomy. Therefore, shame is a private emotion and is only felt by the individual. Therefore, when someone is able to overcome their own private emotion, they have no problems expressing it and sharing it in, in an audience. But in an Asian context, shame is communal, and it bleeds over and it affects the people around you. Therefore, shame is not experienced just by one individual, but if you bring shame upon yourself, you're also bringing shame upon your family. You're also bringing shame upon your community. Now, you know, just growing up, um, you know, when I was applying for colleges, I would talk to my friends, and they wouldn't get into some of the colleges um, that they wanted to, and I'd be like, hey, are your parents mad? And they'd be like, no, why would they be mad? I'm mad. But then when I didn't get into colleges that I wanted to get into, you know, I was like, oh, my parents are going to feel ashamed that the only college I got into is this. It's a, it's, a, it's a different cultural context, right? And so when we take a look at the Bible in a, in a closer way, I think we have to be very careful to think, at least for me, that I was always taught and it was always modeled for me that the way we combat shame and the way we process shame was through a, a more Western evangelical white uh, lens. So it's, hey, don't worry about your shame. Jesus has freed you from your shame. And it was always individual. It was always this idea of you yourself as an individual, don't worry about what you're going through. You're just, you know, just lift it up to God and lift it up to Jesus. Jesus loves you and accepts you without understanding. It, we weren't worried just about Jesus accepting us. We're worried about what our parents are going to think about us. We're worried about what our friends are going to think about us. We're worried about what our church community is going to think about us. And for Moses... 
he is closer to an Asian cultural context than the white evangelical American church context. He's dealing with shame in a much more Asian way than we would see what happened in our Western world. He was called out for being a murderer. He was called out for, for what he has done. And what does he do? He ran away to Midian. There was no processing of his, of his sin and his shame. Even as God calls him to be the leader of his people, even though God calls him to say, you are going to lead my people out of slavery, he doesn't have a time where he goes to the people of Israel and say, hey, guys, remember I killed that one dude? Yeah, I'm sorry, man. Like, I processed it in Midian. Me and God had a talk. Like, it's all good now. No, he wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? He, he is very clear about his shortcomings, he writes the story about how he disobeyed God and, and struck the rock instead of speaking to it. He writes about the fact that even though he was the one to lead the people into the promised land, he never once stepped foot in the promised land. And yet there's no, nothing here that talks about him repenting of his murder, of him confessing it and, and, and hashing it out. Because it was, it was implied. It was implied. And this is the thing where in our Asian context, oftentimes we operate under this thing called nunchi. If you're Korean, you know what that is. Uh, the Japanese have an equivalent of it. I don't know the word, but it, it, it tra- loosely translates to reading the air. Right? So nunchi, it, it literally means I force power. Right? I, didn't, I didn't realize that's what it meant. I was like, oh yeah, nunchi, right? Like, right? But it's... it's it's this idea of one's ability to sense someone's mood and emotions by being around them and talking to them. Right? Uh, the, the Japanese uh, are very good at this, where if you visit Japan, they, people are like, oh, they're the most polite people in the world. Why? Because they're always reading your sense and your mood, and they're always trying to make sure that they're not stepping on your toes, right? Uh, uh, and, and, and some people who have no nunchi, right, are the ones that are like, dude, why is this guy so offensive, right? Like, they have no sense. And so when, throughout my life, and maybe you can resonate with this as well, it, growing up in an Asian immigrant home, we had to learn what nunchi was. My parents never apologized to me, ever, not once. Not because they weren't sorry, because that, but that's the culture. They don't outwardly confess their wrongdoings. That would be too shameful. They would just change things up. So if my mom knew that she was like too mean to me uh, and she was yelling at me or something, then all of a sudden she'd come into my room like an hour later and she has like a plate full of like melons. Eat some melons. You needed to study, you know? And I'd be like, aha, you're sorry, you know? Right? And, and I operate in this way. My wife hates this, but you know, like it's really hard for me to say sorry to my wife when we, when we, get, when we get into an argument. But instead, what do I do? I do the dishes. You know, I'm like, hey, how's it going? You know, like, because, it, but, and, and she tries to apologize to me in a Western way. She goes, I'm sorry. I go, I don't care about your sorry, you know, change, you know, like it, it's different, right? And, and, and so this idea of an Asian, in an Asian context, to be able to outwardly confess your sins, to outwardly confess your sins in a public manner is not something completely prescribed in Scripture. Scripture says confess your sins to one another, 
But the way that has always been modeled for us is that the, the way that we saw confession was always a grand gesture, right? Of a, of, a, of a person, a former addict coming up on stage in front of a mega church and saying, Jesus freed me. This is the, how I used to live. I used to sleep with prostitutes. I used to do this. And like, and, and, and in my Asianness, when I would hear this testimony, I'd be like, ooh, like, I'd cringe a little bit because I didn't understand what was going on. When we see confession modeled for us in scripture, it's never that grand gesture in front of an entire crowd. Even Apostle Peter, even though he denied Jesus three times, how does his, how does his relationship be reconciled with Jesus? They're camping, they're barbecuing fish right by a lake. And then Jesus, he doesn't go, Peter, remember I said you were gonna deny me three times and you said never? Well, you denied me three times. <laughs> and you know, Peter's like, oh, you're right, I'm sorry. Bring all the other disciples, guys. Let's, let's clear the air, you know? I denied Jesus. I said I wasn't going to, but I did. To a little girl, you know, like, no, that didn't happen. Jesus doesn't even bring it up. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter says, yes, Lord. You know I love you. Peter, do you love me more than the yes and three times? To suddenly remind him that, hey, we're talking about your three denials without really saying anything. Happens in a small, intimate setting. So the idea of confessing our sins to one another is something that needs to be done. It's prescribed in scripture. But the model in which, and the method in which we do it is something that we need to really think about in our context. Now, I'm not saying that I have the answer, but I'm saying we need to start that conversation. Perhaps it is in small, intimate settings. Perhaps it is with a trusted few. Perhaps it is with just your pastor. I I don't know. And maybe we don't even say it outwardly. Maybe it's all just implied. Because right now, the way that we operate is that we either don't say anything and don't mention it, and then we just start serving the church more, or we say, you know what, I'm going to just save the shame for everybody, and I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go to that other church in Brea. I'm going to go to that other church in Anaheim, you know? And they're going to be like, oh, what's, what are you doing here? Oh, yeah, I used to go to Grace Hill, but now I'm here, you know? Cool. And I'm really, I really want to serve, you know? Because that's how I'm going to repent and confess my sins. I'm not going to tell you exactly what happened, but hey, I'm here now, you know? And then we never talk about it again. So we have to be aware of how we operate and think about, well, now how can we really apply biblical truths into our context? And when we think about this, it's all centered around Jesus, right? It's all founded upon Jesus and what he has done. And I think in just as we have to understand the limitlessness of God's grace, we also have to understand the solution in which our shame is conquered. So now Jesus, uh, you know, when we think about the Old Testament and we think about the Bible, it's really the story of understanding who is the seed of the woman. So without going too much into, into the context, basically after Adam and Eve, they sin, God curses Adam and Eve and the serpent, and, and there's, a, there's a, a, a prophecy that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So we're, throughout the Old Testament, we're seeing characters being introduced and we're wondering, is this the seed of the woman that's gonna crush the seed of the serpent? Oh no, it's actually the seed of the serpent. You know, and we're, is this the seed of, so we're, we're waiting and seeing, right? 
And, and, and if you're reading the Old Testament and you're reading about Moses, you're like, oh, maybe this is the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to lead the people of Israel out of slavery into the promised land, back to, the, back to Eden, right? Um, but, and, we're, and we see that he fails. He disobeys God. We're, we're, going, and we're seeing David and Solomon. We're seeing all of this. And then finally we get to Jesus and we understand that Jesus is the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, Now, when we see Moses, we see his failure, we see that ultimately is leading to who Jesus is. And in Jesus' genealogy, you would think that Jesus' genealogy would be perfect, that that his story would be, uh, you know, like he would have the perfect pedigree, that he'd be the one that everyone would have no doubt that he is the seed of the woman, that no one would have any doubt about his place as the Messiah, as the Son of God, that it would be, he would be perfect. But even in his genealogy, and I'm not going to read it, but just to give you a couple names that uh, come out in Matthew, um, the, f- the first name that pops out is a name Tamar. If you guys don't know who Tamar is, this is a wild story. Okay? All you people who say, hey, don't watch Game of Thrones, it's too uh, secular, then don't read the Bible, because the Bible is worse than Game of Thrones. Not worse, but you guys know what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's scandalous. In the Jewish laws, if your husband dies without giving you any children, the duty to give you children was on his brother. Okay? And if he dies, it just keeps going down the line. And then, it, and then if you have no more brothers, then it, beca- it goes to the uncle. It's, it's really scandalous kind of stuff, right? Tamar's husband dies. Tamar's husband is the son of Judah. Uh, so Judah's other son is now given the authority and, and the, the obligation to give Tamar a child. Um, he does not do so. He purposely spills his... I'm seeing if there's any children here. He doesn't do so, okay? And then he dies. And then Judah, he's like, I got another son, but he's not of age, so you got to wait. But Tamar sees and watches him grow, and he, she realizes, oh, he's not going to give me his youngest son. And if I was Judah, I wouldn't either. I'd be like, dude, you're, you got, you're cursed. All my sons keep dying when they're with you. Um, so what, what does Tamar do? She dresses up as a prostitute, seduces Judah, and has a child with her father-in-law. Okay? That's Jesus' great, 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 great grandma. Next, we see a name called Rahab. Rahab pops out. Rahab's not even a, a, a Jew. She's a Gentile. She's a prostitute. She's in Jesus' lineage. Then when it describes Solomon, this is what the author writes about Solomon. Solomon, the son of David, by the wife of Uriah. Right? Very clearly. There's, there's no skeletons in the closet of Jesus. It's all out in the open. Saying Solomon is the son of David by the wife of Uriah. Because we all, if you don't know the story, basically David killed his best friend because he liked his best friend's wife. Right? And had a child with her. And then it says, you know, obviously it comes to Mary, one who's given a virgin birth. Throughout the New Testament, the Pharisees referred to Jesus as the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. Why? Because they believed that, she, that Jesus was an illegitimate child. Jewish sons were described as the sons of their father. But Pharisees never referred to Jesus in that way. So all of this to show that Jesus was able to experienced the deepest shame in his culture. To experience every ounce of shame that we can even imagine. And then how was he killed? He is crucified naked on a cross. 
If you think about, I mean, dying sucks. What's the worst way to die? Die naked. Because then people find you and you're like, oh, you're naked. You know, like, that's the most embarrassing thing, right? Why? Because, you know, Adam and Eve, what do, what do they do when they sin? They, they, they covered up their nakedness. That's the most shameful thing for us as humans. And yet Jesus, one without sin, who came into this world to bring salvation upon his people, experienced all the grace of his lineage, all the shame of his lineage, experienced the shame of a shameful death dying naked on a cross, and also bore the entire sin and shame of the entire world upon his shoulder. To the point where his father turns his back on him. If we truly believe in a savior that has conquered shame in our place, if we truly believe in a God who can extend limitless grace into our lives, then we must start understanding and striving to confess our sins, to be vulnerable, to process our sin and shame not only individually amongst ourselves, but even within small intimate groups. Let's pray. If you could just take a few moments to respond to God. I'm sure that there are many of us here um, that are ashamed of certain things in our lives, maybe certain actions that we are participating in, maybe certain relationships that are broken, Maybe certain things that we think that people will not accept, people will not understand, and that things that will never be condoned. Take some time to really lift that up to God. Ask him to give you clarity in how to go about in confessing those sins. Think about how, what it means for us to live in the full grace of God. Let's take a few moments.